Yo, people, welcome to Brandpreneur, a platform that inspires the action needed to build a disruptive brand and impact the universe. I'm Matt Thorne, aka Sketchy Media, and I'm Phil Kemish, aka Phil Kemish. And Brandpreneur is the place for you if you're starting up, scaling up, on the road to success. Every week, we're going to unveil the tips and tricks from the people that have been there and done it. So, subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review if that is something that you are into. That would be very much appreciated. This week on the Grind Show, we have Liam Green, the co-founder of Hype Clothing. This guy started the business at 19 and scaled it globally. An incredible guy and a man after my own heart as a designer. Super excited about this episode. Let's get right into it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yes, people, welcome to Branchpreneur Podcast. We are here joined by the one and only Liam Green from Hype. Yes. Just Hype. Hype? Just Hype? Hype. Just Hype's our website. But yeah, I mean, we're known by both sort of names. Domain things, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. We've someone been, someone had domain, uh, we, the Hype domain. Yeah, unfortunately, someone had Hype.com. But, you know, we managed to get .com off, uh, just Hype.com off Carphone Warehouse in Germany. because they, they went bust. <laughs> no idea. I think they did like a marketing campaign, like a hashtag. And bought it like years ago and then they kind of went bust. So we just snatched it off them. Oh, so that worked out well. <laughs> I've got a few marketing hashtags. I think you do. So just quickly, <laughs> for anyone that doesn't know about, about Hype clothing, um, just what is it? When did it start? Yeah, so Hype started in 2011. At the start, it was kind of almost like a band merch-esque sort of thing. There was never really a plan. So at the start, Hype was just kind of a movement. It wasn't really planned to be a, a clothing brand as such. Um, we started off with a lighter because that's all we could afford to make. We had like £200 to our name. You made a hype lighter? Yeah, he said, uh, get your own fucking lighter on it. So <laughs> the idea, <laughs> at this point, I was at kind of just just at university first year. So I was out all the while and like I thought everyone's always asking for a lighter in the smoking area. So we just thought it was kind of a, a funny thing. And Tumblr was massive then. So like yeah. everything on there is kind of like Teen Angst, Teen Rebellion. It was all stuff like uh, kind of like that, like slogan based yeah, yeah. on like girl tees and things like that. And we just thought it was really relevant for the time. We never really expected anything to happen. And we, we put it on that, that platform and the right accounts kind of got hold of it. Influencers at that time didn't know what a, an influencer was. I don't think anyone particularly yeah, really not did. Not Tumblr. It was just uh, people that had big tumblers basically reposted it and then everyone wanted to buy it for like three pounds. So we hadn't like tripled off our money. We was well happy. <laughs> did you sell it from... Yeah, yeah, we sold it from the website. Um, we have like loads of issues shipping them now. So we've got like pallets at the office. So if anyone wants some, hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> pallets of lighters. Yeah, literally mad. <laughs> so did you set up a website because of the lighter? Yeah, so we started on Big Cartel. Um, yeah, it's kind of one of them like what you see is what you get websites. Yeah. Um, I think they did like a free package for like 10 products. Yeah. So it was like, okay, no outlay. Let's bang this website up. Literally, I don't think we put the logo on the website. It's just like... I uh, didn't think I did a main. I think it was like bigcartel.com slash hype or just hype or something yeah. like that. And just had the lighter on there and then 
people was just coming from Tumblr, literally. We had no ad sets or marketing budget. It was just all, all organic. Were you selling like quantities of them as well? Uh, well, I think we only bought like a hundred or something because it was like that was like a big risk at that time. Yeah. Um, and then we did restocking, but we never really earned like thousands. We probably yeah. earned like yeah. five or six hundred pounds. So in a way, that was like your MVP, your minimum viable product was like let's stick a, a brand on a lighter, let's test it with Tumblr. And once you saw that little bit of pickup, yeah, you I'm, started thinking what what could this be? Yeah, like I mean, said, we always wanted to do t-shirts, but I think there was about one pound thirty at that at that time, and a lighter <laughs> was thirty p. So I thought I can get a lot more lighters than I can t-shirts. So I just thought, let's start with this, less risk. In worst case, we can just give it out as a promotional product. Yeah. I can give more lies out than I can t-shirts. So it was kind of that decision that we made. So um, in 2011 then, I mean, you're only 20, in your mid-20s now, which makes me feel well old. But <laughs> you were, uh, how old when you, when you, when you kicked uh, this off? God, I must have been 18, 17, wow. 18, yeah. Do the maths, I think. Oh, yeah, no, the maths are probably completely wrong. Someone's <laughs> yeah. going to correct me online. But so, so, so I definitely think like, you know, you were part of the audience, weren't you? You were, you were able, you were going out, you were seeing the trends. Yeah. You were probably part of that initial wave of, I guess there's like a transition from like indie, like you were talking about this. Yeah, like indie was like huge at that point. Like I used to go a place in Leicester called Mosh and that was kind of like the alternative sort of nightclub. So I had like, uh, I think at that point it was dubstep on the top floor. Middle floor was like, rock and then bottom was like alternative wow. stuff so that was kind of <laughs> like the music then and uh the thing about that place like this is why it's relevant i'm not just mm. kind of waffling but um everyone used to go in like mad pattern shirts you know from the from vintage shops that was yeah, like the thing. it was almost like a, a full print yeah pattern. yeah like black jeans uh full print mat, like the horriblest one you could find was like the best one yeah um and it was almost like a competition especially between the lads who could wear sort of the most kind of vulgar shirt really and i used to be like you know up there with like the worst worst wearers um but then i kind of had the the idea like um no one's doing this on like casual t-shirts and i was just like why and i kind of found out when i was researching that um it was more that it was quite expensive to do the print process like all over print um and at that point you kind of had like fades on the arms you couldn't do the full the full yeah it panelled so, off didn't it yeah that, that's kind of where i think we got so i think when a lot of people think of hype they think of like bold prints um yeah on sort of t-shirts were one of the main things that we kind of got our name for. I remember seeing your t-shirts and being like, fuck, those guys have managed to crack the full print t-shirts. <laughs> yeah. We were trying to do it for a couple of things we were working on and we were just like, it's so expensive and yeah. no one, very few people could nail it. But Oh yeah, that, that was like, at that point we was kind of, I suppose, held as like the pioneers of that kind of thing. It was like yeah. the first sort of people to jump on it. I mean, a lot of people had done it, but then they was charging like stupid money for it because yeah. it was so expensive to do. At this point, it wasn't really working out margins. Like if he was paying five pounds for it, we was happy to get six. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it was like pound profit, even though yeah. it probably really wasn't, but it was kind of like- But you were establishing the brand. Yeah, we had no kind of overheads anyway. It was from like a bedroom. So we were, for us, we, it kind of was a, a pound profit. Um, and I think online people hadn't really seen anything anything like that before. But I suppose the key thing to mention as well is at that point we couldn't even print the back because we didn't have enough money. So we had a t-shirt where it was on all the front, over all front. print and the back was white, yeah. <laughs> and that was literally, if we didn't sell those t-shirts, like we was absolutely fucked. Like we had like, we'd have had like no money. We put like everything into that. Wow. So everything was on the line. And, 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 and how quick was that from the lighters to the first kind of t-shirt? Was there a tipping point when you started to sell out? Uh, so there's a, quite a lot of like bits happen between the lighter and say the first all over floral print t-shirt. So um, basically went from the lighter and generated a bit of income and that was, we were using that on like Facebook and things like that. Ads was quite in its infancy. Didn't really know what I was doing. It was kind of just like, yeah, that looks about right. Kind of like target audience supreme or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like, yeah. Probably didn't even really like maximize anything, but at least we was doing it. That was kind yeah. of our attitude. Um, and we ended a competition actually on Facebook where this was when there was no algorithms or everyone's seen your content. So if you had 100,000 likes, 100,000 people would see yeah. 
see it on their news those feed. Those were the days. Yeah, those were the days, yeah. Just bring it back. <laughs> um, and there was a competition on there by a merch printer, literally was, um, I think they was in Wales or something. And they had like a, a screen print press and they, it was like a like or share, like this was, yeah. I didn't really know what a like or share competition was then, but this, this was it. This was an early form of it. Um, and we entered um, with a design of Einstein with sort of like um, ear stretchers, nose ring, little Wayne tears, tattoos, like it was proper out there. And kind of everyone else sort of entered with like a picture of a ship, like uh, so it was just really like boring stuff. Yeah. So obviously ours stood out and we managed to get the most likes and we won 53 t-shirts. So we had the money from the lighters, 53 t-shirts, which sold for 10 pound each. So we had like a bit of a bankroll and then that bankroll went into other products. So um, we turned like one t-shirt into five, five into 10. That's kind of how we multiplied it. Yeah. So scaled it out kind of economically. Yeah. yeah didn't take any bootstrap. money out. It was just about getting more product. And going back to the lighters, did you have the hype written on the first lighters or was it just the slogan? Yeah, so it was kind of like a real big condensed font, like get your own fucking lighter, then it had hype at the bottom. But at this point, the hype logo wasn't the hype logo that you guys know today. It yeah. was sort of script, but it was like quite ugly. And then probably a year in, we we rebranded, which is the same branding that you see today. And what was the thought behind the hype? Because I think one of the people that a lot yeah. of people I see online is like, what, how do you come up with a name? Like, what is the name? What did that mean for you guys? And so at this point, again, it goes back to like that whole shop indie thing. Um, I don't know if you remember like 2011, it was all about like shopping independent and yeah. things like that. And um, like I was saying sort of earlier to you guys before we started the podcast, mm -hmm. um, when I was younger, CD covers was sort of like the cool thing to do if you was like a designer or like creative. And then I think sort of when 2010, 2011 came, it was all about like doing clothing. And because of the internet and the way it developed, you could find sort of like printers quite easily. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like why we moved like um, onto that. Um, so I've actually forgot the question. Mine's a complaint. <laughs> who, <laughs> yeah, who, who was you? Who was your influences from the streetwear point of view then? Um, <sighs> what were you looking at? It wasn't really streetwear, I think, at that point. It was kind of more like skate was quite yeah. big then. So yeah. I was looking at like kind of like Thrasher's Palace. Yeah. Palace was really young at that point. They was yeah, kind of doing... Really young. Yeah, they was... I mean, I had a few pieces that kind of like had old logos on and stuff. Um, so it was really like heavily skate stuff. Like I used to look on a website called Flat Spot a lot for kind of like inspiration and where it was going. Yeah. Um, and again, that's kind of coming back around now. Yeah. So, um, you know, like it, what streetwear was kind of coming in. Streetwear kind of covers a broad spectrum, but yeah. I suppose it was more like indie clothes mixed with skate was kind of the look. Amazing. Yeah, it was very much a uni kind of trend. Like yeah. I just look at uni kids of that time. Mm. That's that was after I'd left uni anyway. But I could remember looking back and well, being that's like, "That's what I felt with like the festival scene." And even yeah. I think you being at your own lo lo own launches where we met you, yeah. it, like being you know with the consumers. I think that was like a really different way of approaching it because I think a lot of the brands were quite inaccessible. But I think the brand that you had, you represented, you represented right? a, a culture which was really interesting. Yeah, so we we didn't want to come across sort of corporate in any way. I mean, you, there was a lot of big brands out there like you got your Nike and Adidas, but you knew it was a corporate machine. We almost wanted people to know that we was like we didn't know what we was doing. We yeah. was just making stuff like we're just some ordinary guys, and that's what it was all about. It's like let's do a party. We're not going to be there with like canapes and champagne. Yeah. We're going to be there. We're going to get fucked up. We're yeah. going to have like Jaeger bombs. You know, yeah. we're normal yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. And I think like especially the younger audience, they people really resonated with that. Yeah. And I think it did inspire a lot of people to think, you know what I can do this if these guys are doing it. Like, and you know, kind of can. Did you have any issues with the trademarking of hype? Um, not in the UK actually. So like really surprising, like we got the UK, Europe straight away. We, we do have issues in America. 
Um, we have like a, a predating trademark to ours, and then we have had loads of battles sort of along the way because it is such a such a common phrase. Yeah, I think it's one of the interesting things about what we've learned in kind of our journey of building stuff is how important trademarking is, and a lot of people. I think there's actually a story about the boy better know guys not trademarking. Oh yeah, boy better know. I can't remember the exact story, but I think somebody else ended up trademarking. <laughs> you, you hear a lot of stories in sort of um, the main places I hear it. I mean, probably happens loads of places, Germany and. Um, like Asia, yeah. Um, a lot of people registered sort of well-known brands because they know by the time the brands sort of got to that point where they're going to their markets, they've already seen them kind of evolve and they're already registering the trademarks. But it's such important. Like imagine you've developed a whole clothing line, you're doing really well in the UK, but you've not registered it, say, in Italy. Yeah. And then someone's or trademarked your brand, you're going to be in like a, a massive legal battle or you can't enter that market. Yeah. So like I'd obviously me and my ignorance at the start, I kind of got away with it. But yeah. like me to look back, was kind of lucky to yeah so if i was if anyone was sort of starting a brand i'd recommend like the first sort of money they get that's kind of expendable put that into trademarks and trademark as many things as many categories even if you think oh we're not going to do i don't know underwear tomorrow or we're not going to do bike helmets take it it might be good to get it yeah just because in two years time you might be like we're really going down this route now with the brand where we're like a biking brand. And yeah. then you can't do a helmet and then you're like, someone else got the trademark. And yeah. what's the sort of cost on that for like... Really varies. Um, I think you can do like the whole of Europe for like a couple of thousand, which is like a the best sort of one to do as a general yeah. sort of overview. And then different countries really varies. And again, it's, you have your registration fee, which could be a couple of hundred pounds or a couple of thousand. But then if there's any opposition, that's when it gets expensive. Yeah, yeah. So if you were going to start hype now, I think one of the questions that I've been asked to ask you is, how would you start hype now in 2019? Would it would your approach be different? Um, yeah, it would be a bit different because the scene's kind of moved on from where it was very DIY before. Now you've got people coming from the sort of starting blocks with full cut and sew collections. Yeah. Um, if you don't know what cut and sew is, it's kind of like imagine like a jacket with like waterproof waterproof zip seams, technical fabric, things like that. Real tailor made. Yeah. Before yeah. you could just get like I mean I remember my first women's line was literally a, a Gildan t-shirt which you can get off the shelf with a, a one color print on and I got a guy to angle grind it in half and it was a crop top. Like that was <laughs> that was like how I entered the market. Yeah, but yeah. like if I did that now like it'd probably get ridiculed. Yeah. So it's really it is has moved on in terms of product. Yeah. So I think if I was to again my product needs to be like on its on its A game. Yeah. Um and, and is there like a is there like a because there's no real steps to do this. Like you said, there's everyone's journey is different. But if you were going to give kind of like we talked about from a concept to creation, four or five steps, what would those four or five key steps be um, to get it to market? I think there's probably a few more steps yeah, than that. But, more, um, but... Name, big one. Because um, you, you've got to make sure that that's right. And a lot of people say, how do you think of a name? And I think you think of a name when you're not thinking of a name. Yeah. It'll just come into your head. And and most people I speak to sort of in business or creative, they say like, I was just driving down the street and I seen a sign. I was like, that was it. Or like someone said something and it just resonated well with them. Um, The second one would be trademarks like we've just touched on. So get your name, trademark and protect it because all your values in your brand. In your IP. Yeah. Yeah. Your IP basically, if you've not got, if you've not got the, if you don't own the rights to it, then you you don't really own anything to be honest. Um, You just have like, an infrastructure with nothing to sell. <laughs> with no asset. Um, the third one would be sourcing and um, factories and things like that. So finding a reliable factory, making sure that they're audited. You um, source all your, you um, make everything in the UK, No, right? no, no. We, um, that you've, you, that information's quite old. Um, we used to make a lot in Leicester. Right. Um, to be Is honest, that where you first started printing stuff? Yeah, because yeah, it, was, it was quite easy. Like, I mean, my background as well, I worked for like a year at a supplier. So I, I, I learned like a lot of who the local factories were and yeah. stuff. So it was quite easy for me to go from um, not really knowing too much to kind of go and approach these people and say, can you print this T-shirt for me? Can yeah. you do this? Can you do that? So it was more of a, 
that was kind of all I knew at that point. But yeah. um, a lot of the qualities are not amazing from local suppliers. There is obviously ones that do really good qualities. Um, there's all of, there is benefits as well, like really quick lean tides from the yeah. UK. But right now we source a lot from China and Turkey. Yeah. You find that from a lot of brands nowadays just because of the quality and QC and yeah. things like that. Do you go over there and visit the factories? Yeah, re- well? really important to visit the factories and have like a whole compliance program. So... I mean, you, you can just kind of find people on Alibaba and give them work, but then you kind of want to go and see what the factory's like, what the conditions are like, make sure they're, they're are actually compliant. Yeah. Because you don't want to, again, have this huge successful brand and then yeah. you're all over the media because the factory's not yeah. um, up to standard. Yeah. So we got brand name, we've got trademarking, we've got make sure the factories and yeah. the process logistics is right. Yeah, and then um, obviously, obviously it's product. So make sure your product is... I'd say unique. When I entered the market, it was something that people wasn't doing, which is why I did so well at it. Um, I think the main problem I see with brands now is that I've kind of been a bit stereotypical, but 90% of the ones that I've seen, they all look the same. Yeah. I've not really, in a while, I've not seen a brand where I've turned around and gone, you know what, that looks really unique. unique. It's different. And I think that's what the scene's waiting for at the moment. Someone's coming in and like really disrupt and shake it up and be like, you know what, I'm going to do t-shirts with, I don't know, rubber ducks all over them or... Yeah. I don't know, guys' T-shirts just they're all made out of like foil or something, something crazy yeah, yeah. like they've, they've not seen before. And it's going to make people turn their heads and look and go, you know what, like this is something fresh. I'm going to back this brand. So I suppose you you probably feel like the um, industry is saturated a little bit as well because the barrier to entry, like you're saying, there's kids now, 16-year-old kids coming out of capsule collection. Surely the market's becoming very saturated. Yeah, very, very saturated. Is very saturated, especially in menswear as well, because menswear has become a bit of a trend area as well. Like menswear is going to overtake women's wear in terms of sales in the next few years. Really? Uh, and kids wear as well is on that next fringe behind menswear. So um, you kind of always just got to be on that like tip of it. Yeah, um, so and obviously kind of Instagram that. must be a massive driver to this. Well, I mean, back in the day, like I said, with ads, like it was a bit of a. If he was doing ads, like he was quite technical at that point. Yeah. He was. If he was doing ads as a as a startup brand, you you kind of knew what you were doing, and we probably missed a year and a half of it where we wasn't really doing like paid stuff on social. And right now, like um, digital ads are so underpriced. Like if you look at out of home stuff and like billboards, they're really really overpriced and they're non trackable. Yeah. So you could do a billboard. The company that you're saying is going to say you're going to get like a million impressions or hundred thousand impressions or whatever they say, but there's no real physical way to see how many impressions you've got. Mm. Whereas from an ad with a tracking pixel or something like that, yeah. you can literally see I've spent hundred pounds, I've earned three hundred pounds. Mm. So it's quite black and white, yeah. and it's very easy to scale up that way as well. well is that the biggest? Sorry, is that the biggest source of your traffic at the moment? Is social ads? Like, where are you getting all of your visitors from? Yeah, I mean, our website's not the biggest part of our business. Our website's only about fifteen percent of our business okay. now. Whereas at the start, it was sort of one hundred percent. We've transitioned into retail now, yeah, and wholesale. Which, to be honest, I wouldn't recommend a brand doing now if they were starting. I'd recommend to go with one hundred percent econ model. But obviously, yeah. the way that we've set up, it's quite hard for us to almost drop that um wholesale arm because it's such an important part of our business but yeah i mean a lot of our a lot of our traffic does come from ads which would be the same for most websites nowadays but at the start you were selling direct consumer yeah direct to consumer most of it was just organic through through what what we didn't know at the time but influencers we kind of just did it all by accident if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And, and how, let's chat about influencer market. Obviously, very relevant now, but in 2011, like you said, it was wasn't even really a, a word or a, a part of a marketing budget. So how did you first come into influencer marketing? Um, literally, like, we just did kind of did it by accident. We was like, oh, there's this cool girl or this cool guy. Let's send him some stuff or do a shoot with him. Was and that really was early on? When you really early on. Like, that was, at the start, hype was like, like I said, band merch. So we was doing a lot of it with, like, bands. And there was, at that point, it was, like, rock bands and screamo bands. And we was doing, like, Slam Dunk Festival and things like that. So you can see kind of how the brands transitioned. But we was just like... I think we never really had a plan on paper like we're going to do this and that and this is the yeah. goal and the aim and we want to get this ROI. It was just like, he's cool, give him a t-shirt, put it on social and that was it kind of thing. Obviously right now you need to be a bit more structured. Yeah. But back then that was like, that was revolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess you were one of the first brands on social to really leverage mm. the social network. Yeah. Like you were doing celebrity partnerships pretty early on from what I remember. I Who think. was the first celebrity you partnered with? Um, we've never actually partnered in such of in terms of paying. We normally just gave. Um, who, who was the first gift. person to I wear your team? The first one that was like really notable probably would have been Cara Delevingne or Jay Z. Wow. So that was pretty <laughs> cool. Oh, one okay. Yeah, the Cara one was really good actually. She wore it on a um, like a watch commercial. I think it was like Hublot or something like that. Like she had the Simpson set on in like uh, she did like a almost like a podcast with that and then we got a lot of publicity from that and how, did, she, how did that come about with um, Cara we'd literally just start that was actually a, that wasn't from our internal team we literally employed a um, like a PR company oh okay cool. and they actually had the contact and they just literally sent her some stuff um, I think she really liked the, the Simpsons on that one yeah and she just wore it everywhere like catwalk and everything like so you, you did a proper license deal with Simpsons did you or did yeah. you guys just slap the Simpsons stuff on, on a t No, no, so it was all, all of our collaborations we've done have been legitimate. They're all above board. Yeah, they're all above board. Not like the first Einstein one getting sued, but these are now <laughs> real. This is, that's the mentality. Yeah, the, the Einstein one was a, a massive sort of bootleg. At the time, we didn't really realise we was doing anything wrong. It was just yeah. kind of like, this is a cool tea. I guess it shows your learnings. You went from the Einstein to Simpsons. I mean, Einstein, you didn't even know the image was 
Yeah, that I mean, we, we, we probably did deep down, but we was kind of like, oh, we're never going to kind of get caught. We never even really expected it to be a business. Yeah. So we was just kind of like, almost that like, fuck it attitude. Yeah. Like, we're going to do yeah. it. And if something happens, it happens. We'll deal with it. Yeah. With with The Simpsons, we went with a bit more of a sensible approach. So <laughs> we, we obviously, um, this was the only collaboration that we actually approached the partner at the okay. start. So we approached um, the, the people that sort of own The Simpsons license to do a collaboration with them. Um, and that was probably one of my favorite collaborations we did. Um, was that something that was easy to get over the line or was it? No, like... that was a, it was a nightmare. I remember on the day we, the stock arrived um, in the UK, like three hours before the shop opened and we had to get a van to pick it up from the port and drive it to the shop. So we was literally handballing it in the shop before it opened on launch day <laughs> because the approvals was, um, they approved everything really late. With like our, we'd already like planned the launch and things like that. Yeah. And the timeline, they didn't approve the product till like two weeks before the launch. Then we had to get it made and then the factory like didn't have the capacity. So we had like a lot of issues. Oh, so wow. it was like a really stressful one, but kind of it always, we were all, we're kind of always to the line to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Cause that's the way we work, but really quick. Has that speed been, to market. has that been, the speed to market is really good. Has that been part of the, your, your scaling up kind of strategy, I guess, is the collaboration piece because it was you guys for, for a while and then you kind of gone into this, this lane where you're going, okay, we need to partner with different people or work on. I think, um, the collaboration side kind of lends to our international growth strategy. So the way we look at it is um, we're partnering with household name brands and they just add more credibility back to our brand because you're looking yeah. at hype and then you've, we've got a bottle of Coke with Coca-Cola. Like yeah. a collaboration, it's, you kind of get put on that same household level and that's yeah. the way we look at it. In terms of money, money value, we probably lose money on every collaboration we do through the marketing activities, influencers who get involved and things like that, the parties we throw. Like we're very lucky if we turn a profit. Yeah. So in terms of scaling up in terms of money and company growth, not really as such, but it's more of a long-term strategy for kind of recognition. Well, I think uh, you're investing in your brand, aren't you? Yeah, you're yeah, investing in yeah. brand being being front and foremost with other brands that are household names. So that's that's literally all it is, to be honest with you. Yeah. And and we only we only collaborate with brands that um, have more of a nostalgic feel. So we kind of want I want that like brands that I remember as a child because that's from my creative. I just really want to work with them. Yeah. Have that although they are kind of like cartoons sometimes, we don't do it in a kiddie aesthetic yeah, you doing grow more of a nostalgic retro yeah. for an adult. The Disney one. Yeah, Disney one was really cool. How have you found like doing these kind of collaborations from, you know, with your core fans, the people that bought the first hype t-shirts? Have you seen like a shift in, have they been moaning at you guys because you're too commercial? Like how have you navigated those waters? Because we've worked on things where we've found, you know, as, as the website, our website grew, it was like people are, are oh, you neglecting, you know, your core beliefs? Have you found that been an issue? I think, I think with any sort of, um, independent business, you kind of start off really, really grassroots and you're, you start off being kind of um, self-sufficient and self-distributing in terms of where, where your sales are and your own product. And then as you grow, you do need other avenues that you move into. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we got a lot of stick when we originally went into Top Man because we was quite an online business. We was all about sort of like um, just selling it direct from our website. And then we went to Top Man and we got quite a lot like, oh, you've sold out this or that. But then it's kind of like, where are we supposed to take the brand? Like, yeah, you said no originally, didn't you? Yeah, we said we said no. Yeah, we said no to a lot of retailers. Um, I remember when we first went in, um, Top Man wouldn't let us go in ASOS at the at the time, and um, the ASOS buyer like started crying. So then, uh, yeah, we went back and said, "Oh, you can have it." <laughs> <laughs> That's so how you get yeah. around it. So yeah. they they just so they came to you guys, um, which I think is quite interesting because a lot of people talk about going to stores. How do I get it into that store? Yeah, I mean we've we've done both. So with with Topman, that came um, literally a, a, a Facebook message. So we had a message one day. Woke up and um, I think we'd had the, um, the the inbox message off for a while because we had like 
at this point we had like no customer service and it was just like we'd shipped out so many orders a lot of them was wrong because we didn't really have an infrastructure to track that and we was literally getting bombarded and then we turned it back on one day and there's a message in there like oh hey i'm the shirt buyer at top man can you come down to our like oxford street no head office um because we're really interested in stocking the brand so we're just a bit like yeah this is like someone just like messing around with us whatever <laughs> but we thought oh, you know what we've really got to lose it's a hundred pound train ticket whatever yeah. let's just go and see if it's it's true went down there and they put us straight in Oxford Circus, which they never normally do. And then wow. we end up being their biggest um, branding store there as well. Really? But then on the other hand, I've had it where, with the first store that we went in was Foot Asylum. And that was literally me and Bav. Bav had a 0.9 mm. litre Toyota Igo at this point. So we drove all the way up Manchester from Leicester. Um, took us ages. <laughs> <laughs> um, got, we got to um, Manchester. We just Googled the Foot Asylum head office. Like We didn't know if it was a head office, their like, registered address, their could have been their warehouse or whatever but it was just a, the, the address we could get sort of from the internet knocked on the door kind of bold as brass um this t-shirt in our hand they opened the door about i don't know two inches like a bolt on it like oh can i help you guys we're like yeah we're here from the brand hype we've got this t-shirt want to show you and there was kind of like oh have you got an appointment we're like no no and then he's like oh, okay like i'll take the t-shirt i'll show the people like kind of posted it through that was it back through, through the gap in the door yeah through the gap in the door <laughs> and then kind of had our business card in there and so he was kind of a bit screwed up he wasn't really presented very nice yeah. um, and that was our floral circle tea he was, um, which was quite popular at that time yeah. um, and I suppose it's quite important to note at this point it was quite lad culture it was all them pin up girl tees and yeah. kind of like terrace wear like tra poly tracksuit surgery yeah. chini things like that and um, we went there with a floral t-shirt so it was a bit <laughs> like what, what's this all about um, and no one in the company apparently wanted to back the, back the brand um, apart from the director's son so obviously, like, really appreciate that he kind of said, no, let's place like a small order on this. They placed 200 units and it sold out over the weekend. Really? Obviously, that, that for them kind of... Um, was that just organic as well? It wasn't like you guys were well, throwing that? You at that point, stopped. we was just online. So there was nowhere to physically go get it in store. So I suppose people that was following us on social was kind of like, now I can physically go see the product, try it on. So for them, they were probably crying out to actually have a physical store that they could do that like real world experience of the brand. Yeah. So as soon as that went in stores, they snapped it up. Like, this is amazing. Um, so it kind of worked as a two-prong approach and then we did we had like a really long sort of stint in there as well and then that kind of boded um, kind of paved the way for them to kind of their new strategy in terms of kind of more they're kind of known for doing sort of Instagram brands and bringing sort of new brands to that yeah. store but that was kind of from the model that we sort of set because they was previously kind of buying quite archaic brands you know sort of like Nike, Addy ones that had kind of corporate president. what did you learn from that story then because that's that's been quite important to you being able to just knock on a door and get things done is there some I think, obviously a learning in there yeah I think it's kind of a lot of people message me on Instagram like oh can you send me the buyer for Foot Asylum or Selfridges <laughs> or Top Man or this and like yeah here kind you go of like, mate let me just pull him out <laughs> or the worst one is where they're doing it to me on LinkedIn and I'm like you've gone out your way to search me on LinkedIn to ask this but you could have just searched the buyer, the buyer on there <laughs> like a lot of people are not using their common sense and like I don't mind helping people that need help yeah. that are being reasonable and it's kind of like some people just kind of want a bit of a handout and I think you've kind of I've done it before as well where um, for shoe when we got into shoe I was trying to get in there for three years with my bags and uh, knocking on the door knocking on the door couldn't get in and we in the end we sent a golden envelope to the director just with a handwritten letter in saying like look this is our brand this is what we're about we think it'd be really good for you and no one's not going to open a, a, a golden, golden envelope, envelope are they? there you go no. so that's another little tactic that you can do if you if you can't involve to drive going to see an influx <laughs> of just golden envelopes yeah everyone's going to yeah <laughs> I, think, I think that's really interesting I think making the product remarkable like you said even if from a golden envelope from the, the fact that you went and knocked on doors physically I don't think people realise that that's what it still takes these guys are going to have hundreds of emails 
to you know to their to their inbox the same you you, exactly, you yeah. are and there's so many brands out there so i think making yourself different is really important i think in the way that i've kind of stressed that digital is so important but real world still really important as well yeah i agree and i think in terms of ad spend and things like that i'd be putting it all into digital but in terms of like you need that real world customer experience as well and like i said you, you could send an email to a buyer he's going to get 300 emails probably ignore you because he's got loads of work on but if you're knocking on the door you're there and you're mm. saying i'm going to meet you i'm not leaving until yeah. you come and see me and let yeah me. well i guess that's partly what your parties did for you in terms of giving people a real world experience of what the brand was you know yeah from, exactly from Pop, yeah um, box park you had a queue outside i mean so for the opening of hundreds of people turn up you know and i think we was quite early on that kind of like brand documentation piece as well like everything we do we'd have a video to follow up so we'd throw a party and then the people that didn't go could watch what the party was like online yeah. in video form um, which is more and more important nowadays as well I mean um, you could just post a photo before and get really good engagement and likes but now it's kind of all about short form video yeah. how important is like Instagram now to you guys I know you do a lot of the, the paid channel stuff but is that what keeps your brand alive is being on Instagram something that's really important <laughs> for you guys and how does it affect like your buyer's perception as well yeah I think Instagram's kind of as well as Instagram and your website kind of work together as kind of the window of the brand. So your website needs to have kind of all your brand banners and lifestyle content, same as your Instagram. But I suppose Instagram's got the beauty of having two sort of functions now, the story and the feed. So the way I look at it in terms of the perfect sort of content mix is your, your story to be kind of more organic content, kind of, you know, videos of yourself, really yeah. raw, not polished. Um, so people can get under the skin of the brand. And then your feed can be more um, lifestyle image generate in terms of what your campaigns are yeah. but again i would personally sacrifice um like a lot of people do themes on their instagram yeah. feed so it has yeah. a one color coherent sort of theme we don't really bother about that we do like memes and things like that we just go about what's getting the most engagement yeah and what does get the most engagement do you know is it, <sighs> we do a lot of things memes or is it is it photos of the clothes is it because you're but both to be fair yeah. like the, the problem is you can look at one piece of content that really worked well last time, like a, a meme that you, yeah. you made relevant to the brand or someone wearing your clothes in front of like a monument or whatever. And then you can post something similar again and it falls on yeah. deaf ears. So it's all about yeah. like one thing that worked last week might not work again. Yeah. The how, week much after. Of, how much of that are you doing from obviously a small team with like three of you in a, in a, in a, in a, I guess a little small warehouse with pizza boxes <laughs> to where you are now. How much of that is run in house at like the socials? Is it still something you're really core to like so being so part of socials and everything marketing? with the brand creatively is run in house. The only thing that we outsource is our warehousing, which is managed by Samsung. Um, I run the whole creative team as like the art director. So I create all of the marketing campaigns, all of the bits of content with the team. Amazing. And um, I was going to ask, what's um, your most DM'd question? <laughs> what's the buyer's name at Foot Asylum <laughs> consistently <laughs> or, or I need help I want to start a brand I'm just like okay I can uh, this podcast will probably be useful for it I can send them the link so you, <laughs> we want to talk a little bit about like, I guess one of the questions people will ask is how do you get your brand from where you are now into a retailer is there a set way or is it you know there's just create the hype sorry for using the word but like create your own hype and then people will come or is it the problem is it's so hard with retail at the moment. Like um, you probably, probably a lot of people have seen the press that the um, high street's not in a great place, a lot of places. So what's the, what that meant is a lot of people that had bigger budgets have now pulled their budgets back. Yeah. So whereas they had more budget before and they could try new things, now they're just kind of hunkering down to what they know works. So they've got like a Nike product and now that's probably they know they sell it through. So yeah. they're going to put more budget into what they know than what they don't know. So I think it has got more harder. But like I said earlier, I, my strategy wouldn't be going into bricks and mortar stores. I wouldn't even have my really my own bricks and mortar stores. What's the typical deal on that? I suppose a lot of people don't even understand how a deal is structured with a with a retailer from a clothing point of view. Is it 
royalty based? Like, what's the typical and the best deal that someone can get from a retailer? Again, depends how your business is structured. Um, sometimes it's better to get a royalty if you if you're not worried about taking the risk on the stock. Yeah. So they if, would if advance you're, you with they? Or? Yeah, so you could get, like, say, a T-shirt and you could hold a 1,000 units at your risk. So you've paid for all those 1,000 units to your supplier. Um, and then they would put it in their stores under a concession and pay you, say, 60% of the money. Yeah. So in terms of margin, it's good. But then you could only sell 50 T-shirts and be left with 950 in stock. Yeah. So there's two ways to look at it. One, you, if you sold all 1,000, great. But then you've lumbered with a load of stock, if not, that you've got a discount and then you're discrediting the brand because that kind of damages it. Yeah. Or you could sell... The thousand pieces of wholesale earn a lesser margin, and then it's the store's problem in terms of if it doesn't sell or this and that. So it kind of depends on what you want to do. Yeah. Which it, wh- why it's so important again to have your own econ because say if you do have residual stock, you can clear it through your own sort of yeah. channels. What are you building? What's the platform of advice for econ now? We've come a long way since Big Cartel. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, maximize Big Cartel to its limit. Um, <laughs> They're still going. Are they? I think we was like one of the biggest stores on there for them. Really? Like we, yeah. We, we did want to stay on the platform because it was so easy. Yeah. And um, they couldn't develop one where we could have like because we have like two and a half thousand products on our website now. So really? Wow. They didn't have like a package or yeah. a custom yeah. thing that we could do. And um, but we re- just platformed last week to Shopify. So we was on Magento before. Um, Magento was really good because we could build our own sort of like. Um, programs and stuff yeah, like that on yeah. there and um could do like a lot of different testing and stuff um but it wasn't very scalable and um, what we, we've just re-platformed shopify and we've seen like a 20 percent increase straight away really that's interesting because um, we've introduced things like apple pay which we would yeah. have had to do ourselves and it's got a lot more kind of like off-the-shelf add-ons that we would have had to develop in-house and the, the other benefit of shopify is it's scalable as well so um if you have one person on your website or fifty thousand, shopify will scale up them servers for you yeah Whereas with um, Magento, we'd have to pay for more servers, which gets expensive. Imagine if you're doing like a Black Friday sale, you've got to buy loads yeah. of servers yeah. or your website can still crash. Yeah. What about, um, you talked about a little bit about WhatsApp being um, something that you guys are using for e-com. How, how do you use that and what, how has that come about? Um, we don't use it so much for e-com. Yeah. Um, we do do some messaging stuff through there. Like Customer a lot of people, service, is it? Yeah, a lot of people are doing kind of uh, messenger bots and stuff on Facebook where they're doing like... Um, broadcast messages and things like that we use more whatsapp for internal communications and communications with suppliers because we find it more live yeah so again going back to like people having loads of emails stuff can get lost whereas if you do a whatsapp it's kind of pops on their phone as a push notification they see it straight away you can deal with something in real time yeah and that that's outside suppliers that's people just as a business you're using whatsapp yeah, yeah like uh, everyone like i'll message someone now like our oh, um Instead of emailing, be like, oh, we need to do this photo campaign or this or that. And then they'll send it back on WhatsApp and I can approve it in real time instead of going through my emails, seeing what's what, open up an attachment. Just find it more. I'm with you on that. I'm, more I'm trying to kill email. Yeah. It's a personal mission is to kill fucking email. <laughs> it does have its cons because <laughs> I quite like email in the sense that you kind of concert everything. It's all on there. So if you've said something on WhatsApp and you forgot you've said yeah. it or approved it or this or that, it's quite hard to almost track it back. But there is loads of pros as well do you not so. use like slack or anything internally no i i hate stuff like that like really? i i use a thing called wonderlist and yeah. it's literally the most basic to-do list yeah. i um i'm kind of go with the twitter approach on stuff like that like i want something that just does the most basic function yeah so this is literally you just type in your your job and then it's literally got a tick box and it, it goes from your laptop to your phone that's all i need i don't need like um, to do a whole like flow chart of how long it's going to take and all yeah. this stuff. I just want to know what jobs I've got. That's why I use Apple Notes. Or still. drag them yeah. in, yeah, priority order and then job done. I think it's really, <laughs> really interesting actually because we talk about like the habits and what, what, what technology people use as entrepreneurs nowadays, but just something simple like having a list on Wonderlist is something that you use. Is there anything else that you use that you, a WhatsApp, Wonderlist, is there any? 
key? Um, in terms of apps, yeah. um, we use a we use a backend system for the website called Ametria, and that's quite good. It's pretty expensive, but you can get like different sort of plans. Um, and what that does is that's kind of all like your remarketing. It manages all of like where your traffic's coming from. And it's a real, real powerful tool where you can integrate into your website to do a lot of kind of automated tasks. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so you can kind of do, I don't know, something simple in terms of if someone viewed this product, you can email them again in a month with this email template. Right. Saying like you viewed this. I'll be like, you can do like funnels that are like really, really long. Yeah. Um, and then it also, it also has a real nice dashboard on there as well. So you can kind of see real time sales, compare it against like the same time last year on the same month. So just tracking things like live like that and seeing if you need to make adjustments, say, mm. I don't know, say you did 5K on that day this year and then you're done like four, you know, you need to kind yeah. of do a bit more on that day or a bit more promotion. When's your, uh, when's your best time? Because I think I remember thing, a lot of people's best times are around, you know, um, sale periods, whatever. You said August is a really good month, like end of summers and summers. Yeah, we do quite well now around like um, back to school because backpacks is a big part of our business at the moment. Um, so June, July, August are really big months for us because we sell jackets there, which are high ticket items yeah. so they're like 80 pound 100 pound and we sell like a high volume of backpacks and that's something on our side because of the price point people are refreshing it as a fashion piece instead of a one-time purchase that's amazing yeah so keeping a backpack and then every season getting a new backpack yeah and that it is an all, all year round business on the backpacks so that's when you kind of see it completely spike yeah and you i see let's talk a little bit about growth we're going to finish off with kind of future questions and where you're going obviously you're expanding internationally how many countries are in now you uh it's 20, it. 24 we're going for wow but the main ones are italy sweden germany um france we're working on as well so and how did how are you rolling that out like you know you built a brand in the uk now you've got an established audience when you go to somewhere like germany what is the what's the steps to get into a international so rollout? there's different ways of doing it the way we've done it is we've gone with a distributor so the, a distributor is kind of um, imagine the way that we sell direct say like foot asylum or jd or top man or next or someone like that in the uk that person will do the same over there um but distributors tend to have a series of agents so they almost have um, like a sales rep in kind of every city. Yeah. They'll go sell to like the more niche stores that kind of want to buy a small unit. And then the dis distributor collates it all into one order and forwards it to us. So we're not dealing with 100 different people shipping out to loads of different addresses. We just have to ship to one sort of um, central location. But again, it takes a bigger margin hit for us. Then you've got to look at the logistical nightmare, what extra staff you'd need. Yeah, yeah, like of course. And then, but again, if you're going with the um, online online strategy, you can just literally do ad sets to Germany. And sell it. Yeah, make sure you've got the right payment terminals and things like that. Like, there's loads of different nuances for different countries. Like, certain countries only want to pay in certain current, um, well, obviously certain currencies, but certain um, payment methods. Um, I read something online that um, people in Germany tend to read your terms and conditions for like 30 minutes. <laughs> It's just these things that people don't know. So efficiency of the of the Germans. Yeah, if there's something in there that doesn't quite make that. sense or something that puts them off, they're not going to make the purchase. Yeah. And then when you go to a lot of sort of the um, Asian countries and like Far Eastern places like that, it's um, a lot of them like to do pay on delivery. So they're yeah. not going to pay online. They want to pay when it comes to their door. So there's loads of different yeah. things like that that you need to know. Cultural nuances. Uh, and we're still we're on the e-com side. We're still rolling that out. We're not where we want to be with that. Right. And we're still learning. So I mean, every day I'm finding out something that I should be doing somewhere that I'm not. Is there anything that you've learned that you think might be the future of e-com? Anything that you really you kind of people should have their pulse on? Um, we're doing a lot at the moment where we're kind of doing stock sharing. So there's a lot of uh, kind of like bridgings between stores where you can do as uh, a program called Anatwine. Um, and basically, this uh, say you've got a warehouse full of stock, it shares that stock with a retailer. So that retailer doesn't have to have your st your stock in their warehouse. They can pull from your stock. So you could have like a thousand items on their website straight away. Wow. So it's just really powerful. Upscale yeah, it's just like an integration piece where you're sharing stock basically. So you can go from like no products to like a thousand on someone's website overnight pretty much. 
And as you scale, like growing the team, obviously from the original three or four, is it three guys that was? Yeah, it was three, three of us, yeah. So where, how many people are you at now? Uh, just under 40. I was going to say who was the most, like what was the most important, not person per se, but the role in, in the company as it was started to really grow. Like when you get into Top Man, who was the most important person? Like apart we, from the designers, like that was holding those was, things together. It was together. literally, there was a guy called Toby that was like one of the first people that we employed. And um, at this point I was packing the orders myself, designing, running sort of all the back office pieces, warehouse and everything. And then he was the, the guy that kind of came in and he was the guy that would pack the online orders and do the warehouse inside. And he wasn't like a specialist, he was just a guy. Yeah. But he was a guy that was hands-on, he was doing it. And sometimes you just need a doer. Like yeah. you, they don't need to be like, I don't know, they've had this past experience and that. You just need someone that's going to be hands-on half the time. Allowing you to basically build up. Yeah, and that was like they... the scariest thing, like knowing that if we mess this up, like <laughs> it wasn't just us that wasn't going to eat. There was a guy that wasn't going to have his wage. Yeah. But we ne obviously we always managed to pay his wage, but it was... Almost that as well, knowing that it wasn't just your neck on the line. Now, now you kind of had someone else to yeah. provide responsibility for. to. Deliver, you raise yeah. money, or is it all been from all self-funded? All wow. self-funded. That's incredible. So it's just yeah. from the beginning, all self-funded. Never had to raise that, money. That's always been our sort of strategy. I mean, we've had um, import loans before, but it's not really a. Um, it's not funding as such. Yeah. It's more like kind of like factoring in terms of stock, and um, that's the only sort of yeah. um, source of. Funding we've really had, and I saw recently you've got a new—is it still the new CEO? CEO in? Yeah, so um, he's Mike. So he really spearheaded the international piece um, with his sort of like black book of previous contacts. Was that something you'd made a decision? I need to get somebody who's got the experience. Like, yeah, what was that I mean, like we, as a founder? we've always been quite grassroots and kind of like almost fuck it attitude and um, do what we want. And then um, we kind of realised that we're getting to a point now where we do need a little bit more structure. Yeah, so that was kind of where the hire came from. And you you hire you hire a lot of friends. You said you've got people within you that have been friends from university, people that you've taken on this journey with you. Is there any advice on that? Like, cause I think a lot of people do that. Like, you know, me and Matt met when he was he was a designer. We, we met as friends. We started putting events on, similar to to your story. But and you've kind of scaled the business on that philosophy. Is there any watchouts for that, or is it something you say try and um, do? Obviously, like working with family and friends always has its problems as well. Um, we've we've always had a real positive experience from it, but I have heard from other people that a lot of people say don't mix kind of like work and friends and family yeah. and stuff because it gets messy. And I suppose you can kind of see that coming down the line with like people like that that issues can happen more yeah, likely than yeah. if you're you don't know someone from anything. Yeah. So I suppose that's the main takeaway. But I found that people that have been friends or people that I've known have always wanted to they've always had my back and always wanted to help me succeed. Yeah. Whereas some people can kind of be like, oh, it's just a job or this or that. These people knew it was more and they knew from like our passion yeah. and they kind of felt part of it. How have you dealt with the, I mean, being a young, successful entrepreneur, how have you dealt with the hate, haters? Because there must be some people that just go, fucking Liam, he's having his party, he's doing this. Like, there's got to be that side of it to life. Yeah. You can't all be good. So how do you deal with that? Because I'm, I don't, I, <laughs> it must be quite Instagram hard. Instagram you're, you're a young yeah, guy. Like, I've had mean? people come to me before and just like, oh, you brand shit. I'm like, yeah, thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> like what are you up to <laughs> you know <laughs> um it doesn't really bother me like i do what i do i know it does well like yeah say say if my brand say is shit or whatever like yeah. it's not really your problem is it like you know no. like 
everyone's always going to hate people that are successful. People are always going to hate people that are successful. Yeah. Because and the main reason is because they're not really doing much themselves. Yeah. So don't let it get you down. Just take it as like, you know what? Like, I'm doing what I'm yeah. doing. I'm doing what I'm doing well. And I'm going to yeah. carry on doing it. It almost gives you like, if someone says something negative, it's almost kind of like, you know what? Fuck them. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. I know yeah. my path. And I'm just going to carry on. It gives you a little bit more drive almost. Yeah. So what's the, what's the plan then? What's the vision? Like, I know you guys are expanding, but where do you want to go? Do you want to, do you want to exit? Do you want to step back from it? Start something else? Like, um, we're not really having any conversations in terms of selling or floating or anything like that. Um, I know Bav's, one of Bav's life ambitions is to float. So eventually we probably will float the business, but we're not really that point yet. Yeah. Um, I suppose the main sort of goal at the moment is to expand the international side, expand yeah. the website and, you know, become more of a household name. Yeah. We want, we want to be on the, the like, Ed, like the two people's tongues when they think of like a brand like hypes on there mm. and that's kind of where we want to be like we've never really kind of said we want to be this money or this or yeah. that it's kind of just we've always just followed the journey yeah but i think we've like when we first started we thought we'd get a week out of it so we're kind of like we still <laughs> yeah, take every kind of day yeah, seven like, years in going yeah, this, like, this is all right isn't it's it we got working it. out all right isn't it? Yeah. have you had like has there been times where you think yeah we could do this again let's set up another brand let's do this let's do that and yeah i mean we've set up loads of new brands along the way and like most people wouldn't even know what what there was linked to hype because the aesthetic's completely different. Yeah. The, the way the stores we put in, like I've had brands that I'm selling t-shirts for like 150 pound in like United Arrows and Hanon and Hype really? store, but no one would know that I was doing it. Like, and they've not really been that successful to be perfectly honest with you. And it isn't easy to do. Yeah. Even someone that like myself that's done it before, the things that I've done don't necessarily resonate sometimes anymore. And like say, Say I'm trying to do hype again. It's really hard to replicate. Yeah, and I of think course. when I first got into t-shirts, I had a brand before called Honor and Fortitude before hype. Like it was just kind of a, it never really went anywhere. I thought, oh, let's start a clothing line. Like it'd be a nice bit of like passive income while I'm doing other things. Yeah, like you could, like a clothing line. You need to like live, breathe, it's sleep, not passive eat. Like, income. yeah, you like it, it's it's your life. Like yeah. it takes over your life. There's nothing passive so about what, it. Uh, <laughs> like, what would you literally. say the biggest barrier is then just to start in a clothing line? Just in general, like you've started new ones. Some work, some haven't. But what would you say the biggest barrier is? Um. From when people are inboxing me, it's actually the starting part. I know it's kind of a bit cliche, but yeah. there's a lot of people that are like, oh, I've got this brand. And then you're talking to them and they're asking loads of advice. And you're like, okay, send me a link. I'm like, oh, it's not live yet. You're like, well, you haven't got a brand. You've got an idea. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's almost that like the main barrier of people is actually like taking an idea and actually making it a product and launching it. And I think a lot of people are just really, really scared to fail. Like, oh, but what if I launch it and no one buys anything? Then you, you've learned a lesson, you move on, maybe you start another brand. Yeah, then, you learn what didn't work. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, that's one of your mantras, isn't it? It's kind of fail fast, which yeah. I really love. Or may, maybe you decide you don't even want to do a clothing brand. You, you decide, oh, yeah, this is not for me, but you met someone along the line and then you, you're doing cosmetics or you're doing yeah, a magazine or exactly. you're doing a marketing agency. Yeah. You might have learned that I'm really good at doing ads, actually. You know yeah. what? I'm not actually good at product, but I can scale ads that I'm getting like really, really good money. Let's sell this as a service to someone. Yeah. Like, I think it's just get on a journey and then see where it takes you. Yeah, failure is the opportunity to grow, definitely. Wicked. Well, look, I think... That was a fucking insightful <laughs> conversation. No, There's a lot of gold in that, to be honest. Mate, you've had an Thank incredible you. seven years. And like I said, it's very, um, very interesting just the fact that you've taken something from basically nothing from a lighter into an international business. Thank you. You've done incredibly well. Um, so I hope all the other brand builders out there can learn something. Um, Wish I did start that clothing line all those years ago. <laughs> the two you designers. Hit me up. Well, we did, we did, um, we were just doing like merch for some of the artists that we were working with. We know how like 
Getz was selling like a lot of t-shirts yeah. when we were working with him and it's like just having a team of three trying to run a record label and dealing with the merch it's was a nightmare, fucking yeah. headache. Yeah. I think what a lot of people do on that side as well is they, they don't know when to kind of scale it up. Like they sold a load of t-shirts and then they're they they don't follow it up quick enough. Like yeah. they, they've sold a load of like they sold a thousand black t-shirts with like say they get the logo on and yeah. then they've not followed it with a new colorway or yeah or exactly. Or, and there's so many simple things you can do just to like to flip it, it going. Quick. Yeah. Well, hopefully look out for the the uh, the uh, entrepreneur and hype collaboration at some point <laughs> with with my man Liam and um good luck with everything for 2019. Thanks, Thank buddy. You for Cheers. Cheers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 